Pastor Jason, thank you uh, for the privilege of preaching this morning. It's a great honor and a joy to preach uh, in your pulpit, and I uh, have done so before, and it's always been a blessing to be here. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to the text that we looked at this morning in Matthew chapter 9. And I want to, as you turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, I want to kind of give you maybe a little scheme of what we're going to do today and next week and how they tie together. Because one of the questions I think we all should have together as we seek the Lord's face about His will and direction for our lives and for the church that He has raised up here at uh, Palmetto Baptist is this. How does God intend to shape the community of people to do the mission that He has called them to do? Because there is a mission that God has given to the church. We know the way we grow spiritually is the Word of God and the Spirit of God taking that Word and applying it to our life. And as we receive that Word with meekness, the way that James talks about in his epistle, that Word begins to do its work in us and it begins to transform us and shape us and cause us to believe and to grow and to be and to respond like our Lord. And so as that begins to happen internally in the body, what is the mission that God intends for that body to have in the place where he is raising up that body. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. How does God go about getting a body ready to do its mission? And then next week, when we come together, we're going to look at a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for that body and for himself. And I believe that that prayer then becomes how God actually begins to move us to that mission. So these two messages sort of bookend together, and we'll see how they tie together this morning. Now, let me just give you a couple of context things that kind of will help set the stage for what we're going to look at. And the first thing I want to observe is something that you already know. This passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, through really the end of that chapter is one of the more familiar texts in Matthew's gospel. Most of you have read this text, you've heard this text, you've heard messages from this text. Uh, When you go to a missions conference or when you are in a place and the focus is on evangelism, this is often the text that comes to surface. And so it is a very, very familiar and comfortable paragraph of Scripture. It's almost like when you open your Bible in Matthew's Gospel, other than Matthew 28, where you have the Great Commission, you have this passage, and it just sort of opens up, and you start reading through it, and it's like the words just kind of roll off the page because you are so familiar with that text. Now, there's a great advantage to that because we know what the text says. And ultimately, the truth has to rise up out of what the text says and not out of what I say about that text. So it's incredibly important that the text be familiar to us. And so we're in good stead this morning for most of us know this text. But there's also a downside to that, and that is that when there is a text that is this familiar, it loses its impact, and sometimes its familiarity is such that we bring to the text all kinds of of thinking that we formed about the text because it's been so familiar to us. So what I'd like to do this morning before I pray is ask you to do something. I want you to suspend. I don't want you to eliminate. I don't want you to sort of wipe it out of the hard drive of your mind. I want you to suspend everything that you think you know about this text. And I want you to put yourself, if you can, with the Lord's help, in the place of Matthew's reader so that you would be reading this text or hearing this text read to you for the very first time. So that it would have the impact that the Lord intended for it to have in your heart and in my heart when he inspired the pen of Matthew to write it. So we've read the text together this morning Let's pray and ask the Lord to open that text to us and to use that text to shape us for his glory and for our good. Father, how thankful I am for you and for the word that you have given to us and for the great salvation 
that it represents. Lord, you know our needs this morning, every one of us. You know the state of our soul. You know the condition of our heart. You know it in ways that we don't know, Lord. We know what is visible to us. We know what we sense and what we feel and maybe even what we're experiencing. We have no idea what's coming tomorrow. We have no idea what will hit us this week. So, Lord, we come to you knowing that you know all of that. And as our good shepherd, you care about all of that. And so somehow today you intend for everything that we've prayed together, that we've sung together, that we're about to hear together from your word to prepare us, to equip us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, to grow us, to guide us, to exhort us, so that, Lord, we may be your church doing the work that you have called us to do by your strength and for your glory. So help us this day, I pray. Lord, help me to speak this text truthfully and accurately and carefully in ways that reflect what you really said. Lord, help all of us, myself included, to hear this text receptively in ways that will honor you, the giver of that truth, and that will grow us in and by that truth and that will cause us to grasp that truth with joy and to spread that truth with our lives and with our lips. And we'll pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the end of Matthew chapter 9, we are coming to the end of a very large unit in Matthew's gospel. And what you may not necessarily connect immediately, but you would if you were listening to Matthew or to somebody read Matthew's gospel for the very first time, is that the words that begin in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35... Those words are really familiar to you because you've read those words before. Those words have already been written by Matthew earlier in the gospel. So put your finger in Matthew chapter 9. We're going to come back to that text. But go back in your Bible and let me show you where the beginning of this unit is. And that'll help us sort of grasp the bigger idea that Matthew has. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4, notice at the end of Matthew chapter 4... The paragraph that ends chapter 4 is almost identical to the paragraph that ends Matthew chapter 9. Let me read Matthew chapter 4, and you recall in your mind what we read together earlier out of Matthew chapter 9. Here's what Matthew said way back in chapter 4, verse 23. And he, that's Jesus, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought with him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And then notice verse 25, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So you have a paragraph at the end of Matthew chapter 4 that is almost identical to the paragraph at the end of Matthew chapter 9. You can almost see them as brackets or parentheses. So here is a paragraph that opens the section. Here is a paragraph that closes the section. And when you have a parentheses, what it is doing is it is setting aside or setting apart or or exalting what's in the middle. It wants you to pay attention to what is in the middle, and the opening paragraph is getting you ready for that, and the closing paragraph is drawing an amazing conclusion from that. So that's, in essence, what Matthew is doing. So when you come to this section of your Bible that opens in Matthew chapter 4 with this paragraph, and closes with an identical paragraph in Matthew chapter 9, there is a context to all of this. Something amazing has happened. And if you listen to Matthew back in chapter 4, he talks about the ministry that Jesus had in Galilee, and then he talks about Galilee as Galilee of the Gentiles. And then he quotes a passage from the Old Testament written 750 years earlier by a prophet named Isaiah. And in chapter 9, you remember chapter 9? It's that wonderful text uh, sort of buried in chapter 9. 
Unto us a son is given, and then he's named. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The government will be upon his shoulders of his kingdom. There will be no end. This kingdom will be marked by justice and righteousness. Remember that wonderful text we quoted at Christmas? Well, that's right in the middle of the paragraph in Isaiah 9 that Matthew says, now when I tell you that Jesus went to Galilee, I want you to think about that sun. I want you to think about that region. And here's what I want you to remember. Isaiah promised 750 years ago that a great light would come and would dawn and would shine on people who lived in darkness, who pe- people who lived in the shadow of death. And those people living in that darkness would be in the region of Galilee, in the tribe, in the land that was given to two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulon. And one day, that is where the light is going to appear. And Matthew says, remember that promise? Remember what Isaiah said about that son, that child, that amazing champion of God who would receive the government from God upon his shoulder, who would introduce a reign, a kingdom of righteousness and justice. He would come like a light shining in darkness. Remember that? Matthew says, he's here. And the first thing he does is he finds four fishermen who are fishing. And he says to them, I want you to follow me and I will transform you. I will take everything you know about fishing, and I will turn it into the very thing that will equip you and will give you what you need to do the mission that I've called you to do, because I am actually calling you to fish for men. By the time we get to chapter 10, those four men have been joined by eight others, and right in the middle of this section, we find the calling of one of those men, Matthew the Levite. And by the end of our chapter They have gone from being fishers of men to being harvesters of a great harvest that God has been getting ready. And as Pastor Jason noted when we read the text together this morning, these men, these ordinary, unremarkable men that God called out of the vocations that he had equipped them to do, and he began to commission them to go first to the the nation of Israel, and then in chapter 28 to the nations, the, the, the broader nations of the world. These men were going to have to give their life and their soul to this mission. They would experience rejection, resistance. There would be those that would be gloriously captured by the message, but there would be those that would reject it and that would reject them. And there would be ruthless persecution. And many of these men, as you know from the rest of the first century and what you know about the early church, gave their life for this mission. And so the question is this morning, how does God take unremarkable people like these four men and like these eight men? And frankly, like us, how does God take everyday people like us who are using the skills and the gifts and the abilities that he's given to us, how does he prepare us to do what these men were going to do? How does he prepare a group of people like the ones that are gathered here today, here today to be fishers of men? How does, he, how does he get them ready for that? And I think the answer is what is going on in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, which is all summarized in that final paragraph. And so what I'd like to do this morning with that background in mind and that objective, how does God get a people ready to do the mission that he's called them to do? I think there are five things that are in this paragraph that you see in Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 that really sort of help us understand how the Lord does that. When we get done, we're going to see that we will never reap this harvest if our primary motivation is guilt. We've got to go out there because, boy, people are dying and going to hell and we feel bad about that. That's, That's not going to be enough to motivate us to do what will be required to reap this harvest. 
We're never going to sustain our desire in the face of the kind of response that Jesus described in verse 10 if we think we are the ones that have to produce the harvest. That somehow we have to go out and we have to find it and we have to sort of build it and we sort of have to get it and then we sort of have to drag it in. That, that, that's certainly not going to be at all how the Lord equipped the men that are going to do this work, this monumental mission that you and I have been the recipients of. I mean, just so we're clear, you and I are sitting here because of the work that God did in the heart of these men in the paragraph that we're about to look at. So this is sacred ground for us. So what happened? When Matthew says, all right, here's what, here's what I did to get these men ready for this incredible mission, these unremarkable men who were living everyday lives using their vocations or in their vocations, here's what I did to get them ready. And so let's follow Matthew, and let's quickly uh, look at five things that Matthew wants us to see. And the first is this, we have to see, and the disciples had to see, what Jesus saw. We had to see, and the disciples had to see, what Jesus saw. They were with him in the chapters that we're talking about, beginning in chapter 5 and going all the way through chapter 9. These men, many of them, were with him. But they had to see with eyes that that Jesus opened. So what did Jesus see? And you can see it in the text. If you notice verse 36, he saw multitudes. He saw people. Josephus tells us that as he walked around in this region of Galilee, he walked around some 200 to 250 villages, towns, hamlets, little gatherings where houses were, and he made his way throughout that region announcing the incredible news of a kingdom that he had come to establish. And as he walked around those villages and as he walked around that region, he saw everyday people living everyday lives, doing everyday things. He saw them leaving their homes in the morning and going to work in whatever project the Roman procurator of that region had established. Many of the men worked on those projects. He saw them get in the boats or prepare the boats to go out to the Sea of Galilee to fish. He, he saw all that they did in their marketplaces. They, they lived everyday lives doing everyday things. And Jesus walked in their midst and witnessed it. And, and when you see that, Jesus says, now I want to give you an image to help you understand what I really see when I see all of these everyday people living everyday lives, doing everyday things. And he says, I'm going to give you a metaphor. I'm going to give you an image to help you see what that is like. It's like this. I see sheep having no shepherd. Now, you and I are familiar with that image because we've heard it so often. Um, but, but I don't know that in our day and age it would have the same kind of impact that it would have had in, uh, in Jesus' day. I, I, my dad uh, ran a hospital. I grew up in Texas. My dad ran a hospital in McAllen, Texas. But he bought a little ranch uh, outside of a little town called Mission. And, and it was a little tiny ranch. My dad um, had, had three boys, and, I, and we had a sister, but there were three boys and my dad, uh, my dad had a unique love language. His love language was work. And that's what we did. And he wanted us to learn how to work. So we did all kinds of stuff. And, and every year my dad would have some kind of new venture that he wanted to do on this little tiny rant. One year it was chickens. And we built this huge chicken place. And, uh, but we didn't realize that you had to put a roof on the chicken coop or all the chicken. We didn't clip the wings of the chicken. And, uh, and, and from a previous year, my dad had gotten in, into eucalyptus, and chickens and eucalyptus don't get along. So one day we came home, and all the chickens were dead because they'd gotten into the eucalyptus. Glorious day for us boys, that was. One year, my dad got into sheep, and he brought two sheep home. And don't think like little woolly uh, Mary had a little lamb kind of sheep. Don't think that. Think vicious. Teeth. 
filthy. They got in the dirt. They would roll around in the dirt. Their hair was matted. They would butt. They would just come up and just butt you. We were kids, and we were terrified of these sheep. But it was our job to take care of the sheep. You know what the happiest day of our life was, my brother and me, when the coyotes ate those sheep. (laughs) So when Jesus said, these are sheep having a shepherd, having no shepherd, I had to kind of adjust my thinking about this. Because I don't think Jesus was happy about that the way I was happy when the sheep were gone. What is he talking about when he says sheep and shepherd? So if you go back into the ancient world, this was a whole lot more than a flock of sheep being cared for by a shepherd. This was actually the way you would describe nations. Nations were described as sheep. The people of a nation were described as sheep, and their shepherd, their king, was responsible to care for them, to protect them, to preserve them. You see this throughout the scripture. In fact, this is how God describes us. We are the sheep of his care, of his pasture. You see this, uh, many of you will remember ancient Egypt and you've seen the pharaohs or at least depictions of them. Some of you have seen pictures or you may have even gone to an exhibit where there's like King Tut or one of the Egyptian pharaohs, and they're in their glory, and you see two things in their hands. And when you look at their hands, what's in their hands is is remarkably like a shepherd's crook and a flail. And it represented their role as, as the ruler over a nation. They were like the shepherd, and the people were like the sheep. And Jesus is saying, I am looking at the people in this kingdom And they have no shepherd. They have no shepherd. And as a result of that, they had been destroyed. I mean, notice what Jesus says happened because they were in this condition. They were harassed and they were helpless. The idea there is is not just that they were sort of worried and somebody was bugging them. The idea there behind the word harassed That's the word for laceration. That's the idea of what happens to a sheep or a group of sheep when their shepherd is absent and a wild beast comes into their midst, a wolf or a lion or a bear. Remember David slew a bear and he slew a lion to protect the sheep. Can you imagine the condition of a flock of sheep after they had encountered a a, a ravaging lion or a fierce bear, what would be the shape they were in? And and Jesus said that is exactly what's going on in the lives of these people. They are damaged. They have been lacerated. And, And then they're scattered. They're helpless. They are so brutalized, so demoralized, so defeated, they have no way out. They have no way out. You know, when the disciples walked around with Jesus, they didn't see this. They saw everyday people doing everyday things, living everyday lives. And I suspect that's a lot like me and that's a lot like you. We get in our cars and we go to our job and we, we ride on highways with everyday people doing everyday things in their everyday life. They, they, they check in and sit next to us in the cubicle over or we, we show up at Starbucks and they are in front of us or behind us in the line. We look for gas with them, right? It's amazing. I, I was looking for gas the other day. It took 45 minutes to find gas. And the only way I found it was there was a tanker and it pulled into a QT. And I pulled in after. I'm like, I know what that is. And I pulled in. And I was the only one there. And those people came out and they flipped on the pumps and it was glorious. And I don't know, it's like a little homing beacon went on because by the time I got my my gas, the whole place was just filled with people. I had no idea how they got there or how they heard. Everyday people doing everyday life, doing everyday things. But Jesus said, if you just look one layer in, You just go one level down and you will find far more than you ever thought because those everyday people doing everyday things have been damaged and lacerated 
and destroyed and defiled and demoralized by an ancient enemy. You know, it's amazing to me as you think about what's going on here. Jesus is walking around in a particular region of earth. There's a particular piece of ground that he's walking around in. It's called Galilee. It was given to two tribes. This is his land. This is his house. He is the greater son of David. This this is his kingdom. Jesus has showed up to his kingdom. He's walking around in that house. He's looking at his people, and they are destroyed. They are ruined. They are decimated. I mean, that realization hit me like a ton of bricks when I began to understand what Matthew is really doing here. So we have to see what Jesus saw. And then secondly, we have to feel what Jesus felt about what he saw. I mean, this is what Jesus saw. And and that produced something in him that was dynamic. There was a deep emotion that came out of Jesus' heart when he saw the big picture of what was going on here. These weren't just confused people. These were his people that had been ruined and damaged at very deep levels by an ancient enemy who had come into his own kingdom. And Jesus was moved in his heart by compassion for those people. You know, we use that word compassion a lot. You and I see it. We, we, we feel it. We understand that word to a degree. You know, it's what we feel when we show up and we're, we're moving into a Starbucks to get something to drink or we're going to a, a fast food place and we're going in to, to order our meal and there's somebody sitting there on the outside and you know, you know they have just lost their job. You know they, they have fallen on a hard time. You see it. You can see it etched in their face. And there's something that comes up in your heart and you want to do something about that. You want to help that person. And that that feeling is coming out of mercy. That feeling is coming out of compassion. And there there is a sense in which that is part of what Matthew wanted you to understand by this word. But it is a much deeper word than that. What Jesus felt was much deeper than just a merciful wanting to do something to make it a little better for that person that day. This was a gut-wrenching, life-shaping, direction-altering, action-producing emotion. I I think in pictures, so maybe maybe an illustration might help us understand what this word meant and what it should mean and how it should impact us. So let me give you an illustration. Let me give you a a hypothetical story. Let's let's listen in to what's happening as a little nine-year-old boy comes home from school one day and he comes busting in the house, and, and he's got his backpack, and he throws it off by the hallway, and he's running up uh, the stairs to his room to get his shoes on because he wants to get out there and play basketball with his buddies. And, and he comes in, and, and he sort of skids to a stop because there in the kitchen is an unusual thing that he hasn't seen before, or at least not very often, and it's Dad who's home from work. And he's home early, and Mom has been crying. And he instinctively knows something is wrong, but he doesn't know what. And mom wipes her tears and she says, honey, don't worry about it. We're, just go upstairs and I'll call you for dinner. Go out and play and I'll call you for dinner. But that kid knows something is amiss. And over the next couple of weeks, he starts hearing a lot about doctor's appointments. And his dad starts going to uh, get a lot of different tests. And this word cancer starts showing up in the vocabulary, and and this little kid begins to realize something major is going on in our family and in my life. And over the next nine months, this young boy watches his dad go from being the strong, never-knowing fear man that he looked up to, to shadow of what he was and then there comes a day that this nine-year-old boy prayed that would never come where he has to say goodbye for the very last time on earth to this man that has 
been such a presence in his life. And as he stands there at the casket, something wells up in him. And he decides at that moment that he is going to give the rest of his life to finding a cure for this so that nobody else has to go through what he's going through. That's this work. When you get to that level, that's what Matthew is wanting you to see that Jesus felt for these people. And then there's a third thing that Matthew brings to the forefront. We have to see what Jesus saw and we have to feel what Jesus felt. We have to recognize the depth of that emotion. And and it's not just an empty emotion. It is is this gut-wrenching, life-shaping, direction-altering, action-producing feeling that came up. And, and, And the only thing that makes it sanctified in this text is something that Jesus knew. There's something that Jesus knew. There is something that Jesus saw, and there's something that Jesus felt, but there's an amazing thing that Jesus knew. And what he knew changed everything. And it's at the heart of this paragraph. Jesus knew that he was God's appointed answer to all of that pain, to all of that brokenness. As he walked around in the territory of David, in the kingdom of David, his father, as he looked at his house in ruins, as he looked at his kingdom having been destroyed by an ancient enemy, as he looked at his people having been damaged and defiled and demoralized, he knew that he was the great shepherd. He knew that he was the great shepherd that had been called and appointed and anointed. He was the son that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 9-7. He knew that he was the light that had dawned in Galilee. He knew that he had come to fix all of this. He was the great shepherd. But he also knew something else, something amazing. He knew that he was the good shepherd. And the way that God would fix all of this brokenness was that great shepherd out of the goodness of his heart in complete joyful submission to the Father would die for those sheep. He was the great shepherd and he was the good shepherd. And because he was the great shepherd, he had the authority and the ability to do whatever needed to be done in this kingdom. And because he was the good shepherd, he would do it with a glad heart. And that brings us to the fourth thing, and that is this. We must see what Jesus saw. We must feel what Jesus felt. We must believe what Jesus knew to be true about himself. But then we must recognize what Jesus had done. Remember we said that this was a parenthesis, the paragraph in chapter 4, and the one at the end of chapter 9, there are two chapters or four chapters in the middle. Jesus has been doing something in those four chapters. And you could say it like this, he's been doing two things. He has been declaring his authority to establish a kingdom that had been given to him by his Father that, that would be marked by justice and righteousness, and even more importantly, that justice and righteousness would be granted, it would be freely given to the citizens of that kingdom, and it would flow out of them. And all of that truth is wrapped up in this amazing sermon that you've been reading your entire life called the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus begins in in chapters 5 and 6, and really 7, by announcing and declaring his authority. And at the end, when he finished the sermon, listen to how the people responded at the end of chapter 7. When you get to to, uh, the end of chapter 7, you read that verse 28, when he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So, So here's... What Matthew says, all right? Now you've seen what Jesus saw. You you feel what he felt. 
you know what he knows, you believe what you know to be true about him, but I want you to recognize what Jesus has been doing. He's been getting a great harvest together. And he's been doing it out of that kingdom of darkness. He went into that kingdom of darkness, and by the end, he looked at these men and he said, there is a massive harvest of people that I'm about to take out of that kingdom of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of God. Colossians 1 talks about that. So how did Jesus do that? And the answer is through his words. He took his word and he preached it to those people in a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And it radically transformed those men. And when he was done, everybody thought, this man, when he teaches, he has authority. And then he did something else. He didn't just speak words. He actually displayed his ability. Jesus had the authority to change everything, and he also had the power. He had the ability. And so in chapters 8 and 9, he begins doing nine different miracles. There are actually ten miracles, but nine of them are arranged in three groups. And, and all along the way, Jesus starts displaying his amazing, stunning ability to take people out of darkness who have been decimated, defiled, and destroyed at every level and change everything for them. Let me give you a couple of examples just so that we understand and get from Matthew what we're supposed to get. Look at chapter 8. In, in verse 1, he comes down from the mountain where he's preached this awesome sermon, and a leper comes to him, a man full of leprosy, ritually unclean, defiled, an outcast. And this leper looks at Jesus and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus does an amazing thing. He says to that man, I will. And then he does an amazing thing. He touches him. You would never do this in ancient Egypt, Israel. Because the minute you touched a leper, his uncleanness would make you what? Unclean. This is the first time that you see cleanness Purity going from one person to an undefiled person. This is amazing ability. This is amazing power. And then the next thing is a centurion, a Roman, who has no standing in the house of God. An outsider comes and he says, I have a servant. Can you, can you help? And Jesus said, I'll come. I'll come right away. And the centurion says, uh, I'm a man under authority like you. And when I tell somebody to come, they come. And when I tell somebody to go, they go. So you don't even have to come. All you have to do is say the word. And Jesus marvels at his faith. And the servant is healed. And then Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Three marginalized groups of people. A leper, a Roman, a woman in Jewish society. And these are the first people Jesus ministers to. And then you can just trace it. There's a storm that rises in uh, verse 23, and the men, the disciples, are extremely terrified, seasoned fishermen. You go into the text, and you really start looking at what Matthew's saying. There is more than human sources of this storm, there is, there, and that's why Jesus rebukes the storm. There's something behind the storm. And then you see two men with demons, and Jesus rebukes the demons. The demons recognize his authority. They know right away who he is. And they say to him, please don't send us into outer darkness before the appointed time. And in an extraordinary act of mercy, can you imagine this? In an extraordinary display of mercy, Jesus grants even the requests of these demons. Not selfishly, but out of mercy. You keep reading he heals a paralytic in chapter 9 to display his authority to forgive men of sin. He restores a girl to life. And he heals two blind men and he opens the mouth of a man who's been mute for years. 
And in the middle of all of this, as he's on the way to do these miracles, comes a lady in the crowd who has had an issue of blood for 12 years. Mark says she has spent everything she had. She was at the end of a rope. She had suffered many things at the hand of physicians. And she said, if I can just touch Jesus. If I could just touch his garment. And she did. And Jesus turns around and don't miss this. He says to her, daughter. Daughter. That is what happens when King Jesus touches your life. He doesn't just change what's wrong. He changes everything. We become sons and daughters of the king. And Matthew says, now, now you're ready to hear. Let me sum it all up. Jesus went everywhere in the cities I just told you about, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing diseases of every affliction. That's what he's been doing. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenteous. That's the final thing that we see here. We must respond by doing what Jesus told us to do. He's been getting this amazing harvest ready. He's been displaying his ability, declaring his authority, taking people who were damaged and defiled and destroyed and ruined and making them sons and daughters of the king, giving to them a righteousness that exceeded any earthly righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's saying, there's a whole harvest of them that I'm getting ready to reap. But the laborers are what? Few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send out laborers into that harvest. So here's the point. Jesus has been at work. He has done everything necessary to reap a harvest. And now he's acknowledging that to these men. And he is saying to them, I want to reap that harvest with you men. But in order for that to happen, something has to happen in you. You have to ask the Lord of the harvest to send you into that harvest. You know, I have to admit this for a long time. I had this idea about Jesus at this point in the text that there's this huge harvest that he's been gathering and and there's no labors and Jesus sort of wringing his hands and he's saying, I don't know what to do. The the harvest is about to perish. Where are the laborers? We need to find laborers. And I, I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here at all. I think he's looking at this immense harvest that God is about to reap from all of the nations And he is saying to these men, I know there are only 12 of you, but I can reap the harvest if you will ask the Lord of the harvest to put you in. And you know how I know that? That's exactly what happens in chapter 10. These men are commissioned to go in chapter 10 to Israel, and then in chapter 28, they go to the nations. And those few men and those that followed reaped a global harvest, and you and I are part of that. Because God did the work. Maybe the best way to end is, is with a story, an illustration that I, I told you before. I, I tend to think in pictures, and so illustrations help me take the truth and apply it to life. We lived in Wisconsin for a period of time, and uh, my son, who you'll meet as you get to know our family, was about 10 at the time. And my son um, had a desire to play football. And and so we lived in Wisconsin. He was a huge Packer fan. And there was a period of time in his life where he believed that the will of God for his life was to play for the Green Bay Packers and be an evangelist. And I just would look at him, and you don't ever want to tell a kid, you know, kid, that's just not the way it's going to be. Look at your dad. That isn't in the cards for you. But you don't want to destroy your kid that early. So basically, we found a little, um, sort of like a pony league, and, and he tried out for it, and he got on the team. And so it was like a fifth, sixth grade uh, football. He, he would come home with his little helmet and his little, uh, little outfit, and then he would go to practice, and, and, uh, and then he would show up for games. And I would show up for games, and, and he didn't get much play time because he didn't take time to learn the playbook. I mean, at that stage of his life, he had the attention span of a gnat. 
And that doesn't work when you have to memorize plays that are complicated. And when these guys have been playing together, you know, since fourth grade, he's coming in, and, and so he didn't get a lot of play time. But if I ever wanted to see him, I knew where to look. I just found the coach. And right next to this coach was this little kid with his helmet in his hand, looking up to the coach, talking to the coach nonstop. You know what he was telling the coach? Coach, put me in. Put me in. It didn't matter what was going on out there. Put me in. Somebody came off the field. Put me in, coach. If the other team had a player that went off, put me in. No, not, not that one. And one day, uh, the quarterback, uh, one of the quarterbacks, the regular quarterback wasn't there for some reason, and the other quarterback got his breath knocked out, and the next thing I know, my kid's going in for his debut. And all I know is it looked like there was a huge pile of, of just bodies, and this ball comes popping out and gets caught by the other team who runs it in for a touchdown. And that was the end of his glorious professional football career. And now he's a youth pastor for which we are gloriously thankful. <laughs> but, but you know, honestly, I learned something from that little story and from that little experience with my son. You know what I think Jesus wants for us when he says, ask the Lord of the harvest? You know what I think he's saying? We need to come to the Lord and say, God, I know, I know you are about to reap people out of this harvest you've been getting ready. Maybe there's somebody on my block. Maybe there's somebody at my job. Maybe there's somebody in my circle of acquaintances. Maybe there's somebody at my gym. Maybe there's somebody in my study group. I know that you are doing a work and that as, as you are invading the darkness with the light of life, I know that you're going to reap somebody. I want in. I want in. Would you let me reap somebody? Would you put me in, coach? And, you know, I think I don't do that because I'm afraid or because I don't know what will happen. Man, if I, if I tell somebody about Jesus, they're not going to want to hear. They're going to think I'm this, and, and I, I don't know all the verses to quote to them. I'm not going to have answers like to all their questions. And here's the point that I think we miss and that Matthew wants us to see, Jesus has already been doing the work. He's been getting that harvest ready. When he puts you in to talk to your neighbor, that neighbor has been, been prepared by God. There's a work that God's been doing to get that person ready. You are just the human reaper that's coming in or the human fisherman that's going to catch that fish in the gospel net. And you know what? It doesn't take all the pressure away, but it takes a ton of the pressure away. When we can say to the Lord, Lord, you're doing something. You're doing something in Powdersville. You're doing something in Easley. You're doing something in my neighborhood. You're doing something in my life. And God, I want to be a part of that. Would you bow your head this morning with me as we, we do what Jesus said? We just... Talk to the Lord of the harvest. Maybe you're here this morning and um, you've been coming for a while. You've been listening to Pastor Jason. You've been hanging out with some of the other elders and pastors and talking. And God has made you aware in your own soul, in your own heart, that he wants to do an amazing work in you. Maybe you look back on your life and you see defilement. You see damage. You see brokenness. And you've tried and you've tried and you've tried. You're like that woman in the crowd. And no matter what you do or who you talk to or where you go, it, it's just not happening. And somehow this morning, somehow in your heart this morning, there's an unusual work of the Spirit going on in your life. And God is saying to you, I want to harvest you this morning. I want to bring you into the kingdom. I want you to just touch 
my garment of righteousness because it's the garment I've made for you. I've earned it. I've done it. And it's available. It's perfectly fitted for you. It will restore what has been broken and damaged and ruined by grace. And maybe that's what the Spirit of God is talking to you about. You know there are a ton of people here that would love to talk to you about that. Anyone of the pastors or elders would love to grab a cup of coffee with you. You could just simply say at the end, look, you know that what, what Brother Sam talked about this morning? I just want to talk about that. I want to grab coffee. Could we talk? Or maybe this morning it's just you and God. You're, you're ready. You're going, God, I want that. I want, I want that forgiveness. I want that righteousness. There aren't any special words you have to pray. It's just your heart coming to God saying, God, I'm a sinner. I know this. You know this. I'm at the end. I've got nothing. And I want want life. I want mercy. I want grace. I want love. I repent. I receive. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you've experienced that awesome reality and it's like anything else in our life. We own it. It's, It's amazing but sits on a shelf, and maybe we need to take it down today and just marvel again at what God did. And say to the Lord, thank you. Thank you. And maybe you're here and you have a sense <clears throat> that God is at work in your life, and, and you, you just need to say to the Lord, God, I, I don't know much about harvesting. I, I've never really led anybody to Christ. I, I, don't, I don't have a clue what I'm doing, but... God, I I want in. I want in on this harvest thing. I want to be a reaper. And maybe it's in my neighborhood or maybe it's at my job. But Lord, in the next 30 days, if there's somebody in my circle that you're going to touch or you're going to work on or you're going to be at work and I want to be in, would you give me an indication? Would you alert me? Would you just say that to the Lord? Lord, would you alert me that you want me to speak up or to say something to get somebody to Jesus? Father, thank you that we can talk to you this way. Thank you that the text talks to us and helps us to know how to talk to you. We love you. We thank you. We praise you for the great harvest that you have been reaping for 2,000 years. And we're thankful that there's more to come. And we want to be a part of what you're doing here in this church, in this town, in this community, for your name and for your glory. Amen.